Welcome to the Scope 3 Agenda podcast with EcoVadis. My name is Fergal Byrne. Over the coming months, I'll be interviewing senior business leaders actively working on supply chain decarbonization, reducing Scope 3 emissions in a variety of different industries. We discuss companies' decarbonization journeys, the challenges, their experience and strategies, explore what is working, and identify key lessons and insights. So thank you very much, Simon, for joining me today on the podcast. Ah, you're welcome. Now, before we start, I'd like if you can just tell us a little bit about your role at Carlsberg and I guess how it impinges and relates to the questions of scope three and decarbonization. Yeah, so I am uh, heading up sustainability at Carlsberg Group. Uh, We're a fairly global beer company situated in Western Europe, Eastern Europe and Asia. And, uh, you know, our primary business is to sell uh, beer and soft drinks. Now, being a head of sustainability basically means that me and my team, we are responsible for ensuring that the business overall is working towards the sustainability targets that we have, that we implement sustainability thinking into all parts of the business, from marketing to supply chain to the purchasing of our goods, and really working with our colleagues globally to ensure that we are living up to the expectations that society has for us and also the expectations that we have set for ourselves. Yeah, fantastic. Now, Scope 3 is on the agenda uh, for for more and more companies and certainly uh, more pressing from various different fronts. Now, can you maybe just talk a little bit about how important a priority Scope 3 is within Carlsberg? What are some of the targets? And maybe also you know, set it in the context of the overall sustainability journey that you, you mentioned earlier, Simon? Yes, of course. So when you're looking at scope three, and then obviously we're talking the fight against, you know, climate change. And that's also where it starts for us. Um, so we did our first kind of global scope three emissions uh, assessment back in 2008-9, um, where we tried for the first time to really assess the impact of not only our own fuel and energy and electricity usage, but also of that of our suppliers. But I would say that it wasn't until 2017 when we launched our sustainability program together towards zero that we had adequately professionalized um, the work with, with Scope 3 in order for us to measure consistently against it to know where our emissions were in the full value chain and what we could could really do about reducing it. Because the important thing with Scope 3 is that it's not just your own kind of, it's not within your own sphere of influence directly. It is within the sphere of influence of your suppliers, of the way that you design your products, of their suppliers, also of governments across the world and the energy transition that they're in. So it's simply just a much bigger, much more complicated, much more, you could say, a messy area of sustainability than than when you're just looking at your own kind of uh, inside of the fence emissions from in, uh, coming from scope one and two. How important then would you say is the scope three initiative or drive within Carlsberg? 2008 is quite a, a while ago to be even uh, addressing some of these, you know, these assessments, as you say. But how important is it and what targets have you set exactly for your scope three emissions, Simon? Yes. Yeah, so with our Together Towards Zero program, we launched two different sets of carbon targets. The first one is on the scope one and two, 
um, where we have a, a target to totally decarbonize our breweries, so the energy and electricity that we use to brew our beers. So we want to reach zero uh, by 2030 on those. However, uh, given that only uh, 13% of the emissions in our full value chain comes from our own breweries, then that is simply not enough to truly decarbonize our full product or what we call beer in hand. So for the beer in hand reduction, then we're aiming at a 30% reduction uh, by 2030, because that is, is really where the, the vast majority uh, of our emissions lie in agriculture, in packaging, in cooling our beer, and also in the distribution and logistics part of our total scope three value chain. Now, before we go into a little bit more detail, you touched on some of the challenging questions in terms of measurement, and we'd get on to questions of influence upstream and downstream. But can you maybe just set the scene a little bit to what extent and how Carlsberg has been impacted by broad uh, recent supply chain challenges, and also how you balance these longer term sustainability questions, which are tremendously important with some of the more shorter term uh, supply chain questions? Yeah, so when it comes to fighting climate change, it's not something you do easily overnight. It's not something that you can solve by uh, the the strict of a wand. So, you know, basically that was also the realization back in 2017 when, you know, we were one of the first 10 companies in the world to have approved uh, science-based targets according to the 1.5 degree uh, scenario under the Paris Agreement. And the, the reason that we wanted to start kind of early is exactly the point that we're relying on many, many different companies in our value chain's actions. So when you're, for example, talking about, you could say, the the short-term issues that we're seeing within energy policy and accessibility of thermal energy with low carbon, then, you know, having started the journey early is then actually providing benefits today. So those of our suppliers who have, you know, converted to green electricity, who have decarbonize their thermal energy usage, they are simply in a better situation today when we have this short-term crunch than they would have been otherwise if they hadn't started the journey. And to me, actually, that is one of the most important points when you're looking at decarbonization, that when we do a business case on any given thing, when we are assessing the kind of the outcomes on a pure business perspective, in my world, we can prove 80% of that in an Excel spreadsheet. We can do simulations of future carbon pricing. We can use our internal carbon price. We can say what is the projected energy prices in in the future. But then there is the 20% that we can't necessarily measure at that particular point in time. And honestly, this is where the climate leaders, where leadership comes into play, where you build resilience into your value chain rather than just kicking back and and waiting for all of those both uh, regulatory changes, but also unforeseen impacts in the value chain that we're seeing today. So, you know, for me, that's that's really the point that, you know, even though we have short-term issues, both in the value chain and for our breweries due to this energy policy crunch that we're facing, then having looked seriously at your scope three emissions, at your own emissions as well, is actually providing much needed resilience into your business. Yes. And what about the COVID issues generally? No, for sure. And we have been affected like anyone operating in the world right now. But honestly, even if we have some short-term 
solutions that might not be optimal from a climate perspective, well, then we do have the long-term vision. We have our targets in place. We are continuously measuring and monitoring it. And as long as we're doing that, then any kind of short-term issues, they will be evened out and we will solve it because we have a serious program. We have a serious plan for decarbonization. And that is really what makes the difference in the medium term. It is that you ensure that you have a plan in every single part of your value chain, because without that plan, without the understanding of where your hotspots are, then you know, you're never, ever going to be able to decarbonize in line with the Paris Agreement, which is what we have set out to do both for us and uh, for our value chain. Very interesting, Simon. When you mentioned hotspots, what do you mean here, Simon? When you're looking at, at our scope three value chain emissions, then basically we can, we can separate them into to five categories. And we're looking at agriculture and processing. So this is the barley and all the raw materials that we cultivate together with our partners in the, in the supply chain. We have our breweries, that's the energy and electricity we use to make our beer. Then we have packaging, which is all the aluminium cans, the glass bottles, uh, and the PET that we use to sell our beers and soft drinks. We have the transportation, distribution, and then we have cooling. And when you're looking at these five different categories, then packaging is by far the biggest. So this makes up around 41% of our total scope three emissions. Um, Number two is agriculture and processing with uh, around 25%. And then we have our breweries accounting for 13% distribution and transportation with 12. And then not unsurprisingly, you know, um, cooling of our products, which makes up 9% because, you know, honestly, nobody really likes a warm beer. So obviously, uh, you know, cooling that beer also requires um, some energy and then some electricity and that causes emissions. So you ask me, so what do I mean about hotspots? Well, it, I really mean that we are able to assign a specific value chain footprint to the specific parts of where the value is created for our products. And by knowing these emissions, then we're also able to handle them, tackle them, discuss with our suppliers how to reduce them, and we can make actual roadmaps. So that's where any business should, should start, really understanding your full value chain emissions, understanding the hotspots, so that you can really prioritize your actions and where you get the most, you could say, CO2 reduction for your money's worth. So you're really talking about a kind of 80-20 kind of idea here. Where are the big drivers? Where do we need to focus? Can you talk about the, the process to get those figures that you gave me there? How do you go about that? How challenging is that, Simon? Yeah, so anyone who has been doing a, a scope three analysis, whether you're a small company or a big company, knows that it is it is a fairly challenging exercise. Um, you know, there are many ways of doing it. And I would say uh, there's also varying levels of scientific rigor. What we decided as Carlsberg was that we wanted to work with the absolute best methodology in the world for companies. And for us, when we did this in 2016-17, it was really the Science-Based Targets Initiative. I still believe that they have the best, most practical tools and methods uh, to be able to measure and calculate your fair share of emissions in the world. So the Science-Based Targets was really our yardstick for our work on scope three emissions and underlying the science-based targets, you obviously have the greenhouse gas protocol, which is where we go for methodological 
uh, specifics and measurements and how to really assign uh, our different emissions uh, to the different parts um, of the value chain. So it all starts with having the proper methodology, really using uh, clear standards so that you uh, can point to those standards in, in your, your measurements. And secondly, it's about continuously learning and being open to, you know, change your methodology if something, some changes, you know, appear. And, you know, one of the things that we really focused on was not only relying on, on secondary data, i.e., you know, databases with generic data from across uh, our business. So when, when we did our updated value chain footprint in, in, in 16, uh, based on, on 15 data, we were able to, to get around 40% of our direct spend covered with direct primary data input. And when I say primary data input, I mean information from our specific supplier and the specific plant where, a, for example, packaging is produced, the energy usage at that particular plant, the recycle content of the bottles that we received, as well as the recycling rate in the end of life of where this bottle was sold. So very, very, very granular data on, on 40% of our spend. Then when we did it again, then our aim was to really you know, increase that. And when we did it again in 2019, then basically we were able to increase this number to 60% of our spend covered. And you're kind of seeing a, a red line here, which is that we want to increase primary data and reduce our reliance on secondary data because primary data enables action. Secondary data is giving you some, you could say, insights. But for us, true action can only happen based on, on primary data. So that's, for us, how we've looked at it. And that's also where I think you know, businesses should move to. It's not easy and it takes time, but that is, is definitely where uh, I think we need to go in order to have you know, actionable scope three emission targets. Very interesting. What is the danger or the shortcomings, shall, shall we say, of over-reliance on secondary data? What, why is that such an issue, Simon? In Carlsberg, uh, we have 36 different companies, um, and all of these companies have management teams. They have a uh, managing director, and they have responsibility for their part of, uh, of our business. If we, for example, uh, let's say had relied only uh, on uh, regional data for Western Europe, and so let's say we used an average glass bottle, an average can, an average truckload, an average distance, an average raw material uh, carbon footprint, then all of the companies we have in Western Europe would basically have the same types of impact. And it wouldn't really make a difference if our management team in Switzerland bought 26 large electric trucks, because you wouldn't be able to see it in the results because you were relying on secondary data. You know, so, you know, th that's the whole point that in the optimal world, any action on a local management team level to, let's say, change a type of packaging to a lower carbon packaging, to switch a supplier to one that operates with renewable energy, reduce the amount of kilometers you drive with trucks, switch to trains, you know, all of those small actions need to be visible in the calculations you do on your scope three, because otherwise the people who are ultimately making the decisions on the emissions will not be able to see, measure, and act on the benefits. So this is really why yeah. primary data is king, 
And secondary data is fine when you have absolutely nothing else, but it should be moving from secondary to primary. Yes. I think that's a very interesting point you make there. And as you said at the beginning, in general, it's a kind of messy area. It's quite complex. And I think some companies are a little bit overwhelmed. But it seems that you have to start somewhere. I guess there is a a lesson there maybe to some extent that start with what you can do, work with averages, recognizing that their shortcomings, but having clear goals to get better quality data. Because if you're waiting just to get the data, you, you mightn't get going in time. No, absolutely. And I fully agree with you know, starting somewhere. As long as you, you have the goal in, in mind, which is you know, ultimately to, to reduce your scope-free emissions. And then the question is, how do you best reduce it? And for me, it's really all about uh, us understanding the emissions, but more importantly, that our suppliers and their partners and their suppliers understand their emissions. And honestly, we're on a we're on a global literacy journey on climate here. So, you know, honestly, governments and companies, you know, back in like say 20 years ago, we were all fairly climate illiterate. And for me, what is happening with both the Paris Agreement, of course, in 2015 as a as a major milestone and the launch of the science-based targets. Um, now, with with all of the climate policies being introduced, um, the self-regulatory action from companies, what, what you're really seeing is that the literacy is growing. And if all of us, we do everything we can to better understand emissions, to better understand the actions that we need to take to reduce it, then we can all play a part in really making sure that all of us have that understanding and through the understanding also work on on reducing it because a lot of actions can be taken in the beginning of a climate strategy that are no or low cost, right? There is always low hanging fruits uh, in a company. And then, of course, with technology and with the literacy also comes higher complexity, different types of project, sometimes also slightly higher paybacks. No, but all in all, there will be some, uh, you could say, easy wins that both re- climate reducing and sometimes even cost reducing in the beginning of any journey. That, that's very interesting, the importance of the suppliers and their level of literacy. You're on a journey together, presumably wanting to influence the, those suppliers to, to, to get more granular data themselves. Can you just talk a little bit about this journey, how you do that, what you've learned how do you work with your suppliers? How do you influence them, Simon? Again, uh, I don't want it to come off as, you know, uh, we at Carlsberg, we have seen the light and we are all knowing. And <laughs> our suppliers, they, uh, they don't know their business because they do. They are no. really skilled. They know their materials and the products much better than us often. So uh, it's really not to come off as this all-knowing uh, entity no, what, what, what we're really doing is we're starting the conversation with them. And sometimes we have insights that they don't have. Sometimes they have insights that we don't have. And that's the whole point. And by the way, that is why we call our sustainability program together towards zero and not just towards zero, right? So I can just give you an example that one of our major suppliers back in 2016-17, we were engaging with them. They have a fairly big share of our emissions due to their products. And they had kind of started to scratch the surface on scope three emissions. And they really sought for having a real kind of engagement with us on it. So we, we did that. We discussed, you know, what did we see as the future for life cycle assessments, for example, 
which uh, methodology were we seeing being the prevailing methodology within our business. And uh, honestly, also how were we arguing internally to you know, have extremely ambitious climate strategies when some people were just seeing a lot of costs in that. So we did share openly the fact that you know, if we're looking from it from a risk perspective, we're seeing already back in, in 15, 16, 17 that, that there would be an increasing cost of carbon over time. And we had basically done a projection back in 15 that we are using internally as a carbon price. We shared this with our supplier. We showed them where we believe that the carbon price was going. So if you were looking at this from a pure kind of risk-based perspective, then at least you should start decarbonizing your own business because otherwise your input cost would simply go up. Um, on the other hand, we also, of course, told them that we believe that consumers and other stakeholders are becoming more and more climate literate and thereby more and more willing to, uh, you could say, actually act on whether or not a product is low carbon in the stores. And at the very least, uh, if you're not taking any action on climate, then they will choose someone else's product. So having that entire discussion really led to them incorporating scope three considerations into, into their action, into their management teams, doing their own uh, life cycle assessments to really find their hotspots. And that leads to them having joined the Science-Based Targets Initiative having extremely ambitious targets and converting to renewable electricity like we're doing and all of those concrete actions that will mean that our joint emissions go down. But again, it's not an easy journey. You have to start somewhere. You start with the literacy and then you start by action. It's the same journey for our suppliers as it is for us. Um, so yeah, for us, it's really about continuing the engagement. Um, just uh, three weeks ago, we had a supplier webinar where we introduced uh, our latest actions on climate. We had our good uh, partners from the RE100 uh, joining us, uh, Mr. Sam Kimmins, really talking about renewable electricity, how our suppliers can concretely you know, convert to renewable electricity through power purchasing agreements, et cetera. Um, so that's just an example of, you could say, that advocacy part that is so important. That's very interesting. And I'd like to talk about maybe a little bit about that. that there's underpinnings of trust here. Come to that in a moment. You mentioned this question of life cycle analysis, looking at, I guess, the carbon emissions over the life cycle of a, of a, of a product. Can you talk a little bit about that? What, what methodologies there are? Just maybe a little bit of an overview. How big a challenge or what, how you approach that question, Simon? Yeah, of course. So basically, you could say that scope three emissions, uh, well, is actually kind of the full impact uh, of, uh, of, a, of a company and their services and their products. But the, when you measure the scope three emissions, at least in our case, on an organizational level, then we are applying the science based targets, the greenhouse gas protocol, which provide us with methodology for organizational scope three. However, if we have a particular need to compare one product to another, then you need to go to an additional level of uh, product carbon footprint and granularity. And for this, for our product, so beer, we have actually been part of a pilot together with the European Commission for many years, more than 10 years, to actually develop a methodology for our products and our packaging that we believe is the right way to do it. And by the way, which the commission experts also think 
is the right uh, way to do it. Um, so basically here we, we've defined some rules, which is called the product environmental footprinting category rules. We are advising to the commission that if there should ever be a life cycle assessment done on beer, then they should mandate that this is the methodology to be used because then we avoid that uh, any uh, one producing beer can uh, slightly change the methodology and thereby potentially getting a better output than someone who's actually using uh, the methodology. And ultimately, what we want to do with that is to avoid confusion for the consumers. We want to avoid that there can be you know, greenwashing going on with companies just leaving out a part of the total value chain emissions and thereby look better than someone else. We're really seeking transparency and trustworthiness in the climate data that we're doing. And again, it's the long haul. As I said, we've been working on the product environmental footprinting category rules with the commission for more than 10 years. We've even worked together with our industry peers, of course, uh, in, in respect of any uh, legislation and, and you know, working through the, the commission on this. But for us, that is really the go-to methodology on beer. And that is what we believe should happen in our industry and in other industries, simply having the same measurements, the same methodology in order to enable a transparent comparison. Briefly, what are one or two of the key challenges doing something like this? Well, so obviously everyone is kind of, you know, concerned about the things that they don't fully understand yet. And and as I said, you know, with climate, it's all about improving literacy. And what we did see in the past was that some of the, you could say, higher carbon intensity materials were really not that interested in, in joining an initiative that seeks to measure a climate impact. And, you know, that that goes without saying that what they were afraid of was really that their products would be looked upon as, as not okay simply due to their high carbon impact. But here, I must say that our industry and our value chain, they were very quickly getting on board because, you know, we understand that it doesn't really help to stand on the sidelines and uh, yell at legislators that they don't understand if you have, in fact, not yourself said, I want to understand it, I want to engage, um, because that's the only way that I can also ultimately reduce the emissions. And I think that is really the difference between a climate-denying industry and a climate-literate industry. It is the entire idea that you need to be able to measure it, you need to be able to understand it to ultimately reduce the emissions at the level that the planet needs, right? So that was definitely a big challenge to get everybody in the value chain in the same boat, to get the industry associations to lean in and be part of the, of the development of the methodology. But honestly, I think beer is right now world-class uh, within uh, scope three. I'm also extremely happy to see that competition uh, has also moved on the agenda since we launched our program in 17. And now I would probably argue that the beer industry as a whole has some of the most ambitious climate targets in the world and also uh, not just targets but also showing real action uh, on reducing our our value chain emissions because you know obviously when you're looking at a value chain then uh, we are using the same value chain us and our suppliers and therefore when our competition is setting targets on on redu reductions and then that will benefit the same suppliers that we might share in a, in a certain market. 
Absolutely. You touched on a very important issue, which you touched on a couple of times, this question of collaboration. Certainly from what you're saying there, the the idea of working with industry bodies, working with other organizations and collaborating with companies that may be your competitors and so forth in various different ways, tremendously important to be part of that process. You talk a little bit about this question of collaboration and trust generally. How important and how do you think about and, and, and build trust, Simon? Yeah, so when it comes to uh, to emissions, then often emissions are related directly to energy usage. And in the beginning of our journey, there was some fear amongst our suppliers that we would simply just look at their carbon emissions and say, you know, uh, you you have this level today. And then three years later, if they had reduced their emissions, then we would say, well, then you have also reduced your costs. And then we would use it as a kind of negotiation parameter in our negotiation with them. And, you know, obviously we had to spend a lot of time in the beginning to explain that that's not the intention of our climate reduction work. And it does also say something about sometimes the kind of relationship between um, companies and, and their supply chains that when talks are only related to negotiations on, on costs and there is not the additional angle of either sustainability or quality in the picture, then you can end up in a, in a fairly unfruitful conversation where everybody all the time thinks that the other party is trying to cheat them. And obviously, that is not a well-functioning, it's not a strong, it's not a resilient value chain that you're creating with that. So our hope is also that you know, our suppliers have now seen that when we ask for granular data on carbon, it is not to include it as a negotiation parameter on having energy reductions it is really just to understand and they, for them to understand, for us to understand and thereby you know, act on it in the smartest possible way, starting with the, of course, lowest cost ways to reduce emissions and then ending up with the more difficult emissions in the end. So as your question was to trust, this is a fundamental part of trust that is needed in the value chain in order for us to actually decarbonize together instead of just doing it alone. Yes. What about KPIs, setting KPIs, setting goals and so forth internally? Have you any insights on that process? As you mentioned, some of the data you have at the beginning, the journey isn't uh, as accurate as it might be. Can you just share any thoughts about how you've gone about setting KPIs and thinking about them when it comes specifically to scope three? What you will notice if you go and read the ESG report on our website, carlsberggroup.com, is really that we are measuring currently our scope three emissions every three years. And we basically decided um, to do that because it is such a big exercise. And also that uh, you could say in the beginning for us, it was really about the hotspot analysis, understanding our emissions, and then taking action on it based on that information. And for us at, in the beginning of the journey, and uh, still, um, we think that the three-year time horizon is giving us a fairly good understanding of where our emissions are moving. And then you could say in between doing a scope three analysis and then doing the next one, what we have been focusing on is so-called input KPIs. So, you know, real action such as, you know, buying electric trucks in, in Switzerland or switching to renewable electricity or moving to 
a different type of thermal energy, you know, or buying a different type of uh, material from our suppliers, rather than measuring it down to the decimals of kilo CO2 equivalents. So, you know, for us in the beginning, it was okay to work with input KPIs also on a, a company level. So, for example, our management teams, they would not have a, a quantified uh, kilo CO2 equivalent per hectoliter uh, target change. They would have a general 30% target, but then we would much more use the input KPIs. So actions we know are intrinsically carbon reducing, so in between the three-year period. Uh, I would also just say that over time, as there are more uh, software solutions to measure scope three emissions um, that can make it easier and faster to do, uh, we will also over time be moving to annual scope three measurements. But for the current time being, we still believe that having precise and detailed three-year scope three emissions, rather than having kind of semi-loose secondary database annual emissions, then we go for the, the accurate uh, three-year measurements instead. Very interesting. Can I ask one just question here? When you, you mentioned input KPIs, can you clarify why is that different from using other KPIs or w- what difference that makes, Simon? Yeah, so, uh, you know, as I said, an input KPI is that if you increase the return rate of a refillable glass bottle, we know that it will reduce the carbon emissions with X percent, right? If you increase the recycle content in an aluminum can or a glass bottle with X percent, it will reduce your carbon with X percent. So basically, we have these rules of thumb based on the hotspot analysis and on the knowledge that we have, but we don't spend the time on necessarily quantifying the quantified output of every single action. Instead, we simply say, okay, in this three-year time period, we just work on increasing the recycle content, and then we will measure it properly when we come to the next three-year period, right? So that's the difference between an input climate-reducing action and then an output-specific kilo CO2 equivalence uh, measurement that you are able to put two lines on or inside of, a, of an Excel spreadsheet, so to speak. And again, I think in any business, you work with both. But for us, we decide to, to work with the quantified every three years and then work with the input KPIs in between. Very interesting. Many companies have a good relationship with their tier one suppliers. They have a good understanding of their tier one suppliers. It's not always the case when it comes to other tiers. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so we work with both tier one, two, three, four, five in our measurements. However, we work directly with our tier one, and then we expect our tier one to work with their tier one and so on. And basically, uh, you could say that the, the example is an aluminum can. So here we buy the cans from supplier A, and they are basically buying the aluminum coils from someone else. Let's call them supplier B, so the, the, the ones who are melting the, the aluminum to begin with, and then they might buy the raw material for the aluminum from supplier C. So basically, that's the idea of scope three, right? That everyone else's one and two is someone else's scope three. Yes. And, and that is basically the whole idea behind scope three emissions. It's not just our emissions and then our suppliers' emissions. No, it is the entire value chain. So you could say intrinsically, if you do detailed scope three emissions, then you are taking into account 
the entire stream, whether they're in scope one, two, three, or sorry, tier one, two, three, or four, you are taking it into account. But I would also say that this is where the biggest weakness of secondary data lies, that in case you're not working on getting primary data uh, like we are, then you know I think that's where you have the biggest inconsistency or uncertainty in your scope three journey. It would be on, on the kind of tier two, three, four, because that it really requires that your scope one uh, or tier one is really focusing uh, on reducing emissions. So again, that is the whole point with having a, a proper scope three program. It is to make sure that you measure the entire chain and you're not just cherry picking. Yes, absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about influence outside of your organization? We've touched on this a couple of times, but I'm just wondering in general, this question of influence within your value chain and what you've learned about that. When you're looking at us as a, as a business, you know, we're the world's third biggest brewer. And that means that, first of all, we have a fairly big uh, direct impact. And when I talk about direct impact, then I'm meaning, you know, our, our scope one and two emissions. It's also the, the kind of the 6.8 million tons of CO2 equivalents in our scope three. And we can work on, on reducing, you know, that. And we can do that by taking action, by showing the good stories. And, you know, when we have the electric trucks, uh, when we have converted a brewery to uh, be electrified rather than running on natural gas. Uh, when we have uh, made the world's most efficient uh, brewer from a water perspective. So telling the good stories and showing our direct impact is is super, super important. However, we have seen now with the, the kind of five years journey since we launched together towards zero that the indirect impact is actually quite enormous. So, you know, I alluded to the fact that we were among the first 10 companies in the world to have the science-based targets aligned with 1.5. Now there are many, many more companies who have joined. In Denmark alone, we were the first company, at a, you know, period, to, to, to be science-based targets approved. And now Denmark is one of the, the uh, countries in the world with the, the highest share versus the amount of companies that uh, have science-based targets. And this is really where we're talking about the indirect you know, impact that by you know, taking some leadership, by showing the way, by showing that it's possible to measure and follow up on your emissions, it's, a, you know, it's possible to actually have ambitious climate programs and still have a solid business, then we're also paving the way for others. And of course, by no means saying that just because Carlsberg is doing something, then a lot of others are doing it. No, but at least it's it's really contributing to that societal move towards total decarbonization that is, is needed. And I, I don't know about you, but I have definitely been able to feel this transition in society from just the conversations that we're having around the dinner table and to the talks about you know, plant-based foods versus um, meat. Uh, and, and some of those big conversations that is now happening, that was definitely not there 10 years ago. So, yeah, I'm just hoping that we can play a role also in that transition to really mainstream um, radical decarbonization. A gigantic interest in that. What's next for Carlsberg in terms of your scope three goals and actions, Simon? So actually, coming uh, August, uh, we will be uh, launching an uh, updated version of our sustainability program, Together Towards Zero. It will be called uh, Together Towards Zero and Beyond. And in here, um, scope three will play a, a big role I can also uh, say that that we will see an increasing focus on agriculture and packaging. 
in terms of uh, of our programs and our actions and our targets. So, you know, I would say uh, stay tuned for, for August, where we have uh, a lot of exciting news coming out from our side on how we plan to tackle the, the scope three emissions in our full value chain even more than we're doing today. Look forward to hearing more about that, Simon. But thank you very much for taking the time today and sharing all the great work you're doing, your ambitions and the targets you've set and the journey you're on. And I wish you all the best of success in the future. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Scope 3 Agenda podcast with EcoVadis. We hope you found it interesting. and would love if you could share with your colleagues and leave a review. If you would like to find out more about EcoVadis, please visit ecovadis.com.